Grace and peace to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, uh, as John said, we continue on our journey. We continue through the story and through the book of Exodus. When we left off last week, uh, the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea and had traveled into the desert. Um, Three months after leaving Egypt, they had taken camp at Rephidim. So they're still out where it's hot and it's dry. And this entire time uh, that they had been traveling, they tested Moses and God with their complaining, first for bread and now for water. They grumbled to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And God provides water from a rock for them to drink. And Moses names the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I want to start here this morning because this is a question that we all wrestle with. Is the Lord among us or not? Right. Whoever said yes, 10 points. <laughs> when our lives do not go quite the way we want it to, when we are running out of resources, when it gets just plain old hard to believe that God is keeping his promise, how many times do we really, though, ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? Many times. I think this is not merely a question about God being present in our lives and in our situation. I think the question, it just drives deep and it brings out, you know, is this God being who he says that he is? What kind of relationship do we have with this God? God provides answers to these questions, especially is the Lord among us or not? Is God being who he says he is? I vote yes. And what kind of relationship do we have with this God? What kind of relationship? Let's turn to page 59 of your story. Or if you're in the Abundant Life Bible, it's going to be on page um, 59 as well. And if I start reading and it doesn't make sense, flip over to 58. Um, It's going to be chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." I love these verses because God claims who he is by what he has done. He has delivered his people out of his love for them, hearing their cries, and brought them to himself. He came to his people. He responded. But God goes further. He defines his people as a treasured possession and as a kingdom of priests a holy nation. Out of the whole earth, he chooses these people to be his messengers and witnesses to his promises. 
the very people who questioned, is the Lord among us or not? This reassures me that God chooses people out of his love for them, not because there is some qualifying test or work that has to be completed. But we can get tripped up. What about the verse that says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then. Sounds like a condition, right? How many of us have fully obeyed? You don't need to raise your hands. I haven't. None of the people we read about in the Bible did. So what does this mean? Let's look at the word obey. Now I do want you to show your hands for this one. All right. How many would define obey as an obligation you have to fulfill because you don't want to have to endure the consequences? How many? All right. That is, you're right, that's how majority hands come up. That's how we see it. But what if I were to tell you the Bible defines obey as trusting the God who gave the command because you have faith that the command is given out of love and out of grace. This is a kind of obey that God is after. He is asking his people to trust him, to trust that he is doing great things through his people and for their good. We ask what this great thing is. What is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? God is asking for obedience, that trust, that faith in him, to form his people to be a gift and a blessing to others. And I stop and I think about how the priests functioned in the Old Testament. They were the ones chosen to bring others back into the community when they had been excluded. They were the ones you would go to if you were unclean to become clean again so that you could go back to your family, to your house. If your house had mold, then there's this whole ritual to purify your house. You know, and we read about all the sacrifices and all the offerings that are to be brought, you know, fellowship offerings, you know, you're supposed to sacrifice the bull for this, the goat for that. But the whole thing, all those cleansing rituals, all those offerings, all those sacrifices are brought to the priests so that the community can be made whole again, so that they can live among one another and that they can live with their God. What a way this is to open wide God's relationship with his people. First, God reminds them what he has done, and then he tells them who he intends his people to be. The people that spread God's love and work to make the community whole. Those gifts and those blessings. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is what starts the relationship. This is what God starts by defining himself as. What he has done for his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And now two other translations are going to come up on the screen. And I want us to pause and take a look at them. 
Um, I actually want us to read them together, starting with the top one. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In the NLT, I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. I wanted us to read those together because for me at least, it becomes very personal when I hear the house of bondage and the place of your slavery. It reminds me of what holds me hostage, what places in my life become places of slavery that just drain me of the life God wants for me. It reminds me that I need a God that is bold enough to enter into these places of, his, of my life and extend his hand. A God that refuses to let me stay and live in the places of bondage and slavery because he knows that he has far more in store for me and he has far more in store for you as well. God is not content to let us stay in the places that pull us away from him. He flat out just refuses. As John mentioned last week, there's many things that we can be in bondage to. And if you're anything like me, what you find is that just like the Israelites, even when we've been set free, we'll run back to those places, don't we? It's like... We have a little bit of fear of freedom. But God keeps talking to us. And he continues in Exodus 6. And he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Substitute in what you struggle with. What holds you in bondage and slavery for the Egyptians? God refuses to let you stay under that yoke. He will free you. He will redeem you. He will free you with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. He will enter in and you will look at him and you will see him pointing to the cross. That mighty act of judgment with his own son. That act of freedom in the cross and in the empty tomb that lets us be God's people by the sole power of the death and resurrection of Christ. What would it look like, and what would it be like for us, if we trusted God enough, if we trusted him enough, to surrender our faith to what he has done from Adam to Christ? What if we trusted and had utter and complete confidence that God will and that he does bring us out of our houses of bondage, the places of our slavery. That is what God offers. That is what he promises, and that is what he does. 
I don't think that he could offer less. He simply loves us too much. It's as if God refuses to be defined by anything less than what he does for his people. Remember last week when God came to Moses in the burning bush? Moses asked God for his name, asked who it is he should tell the Israelites sent him him to them. God gives the name, I am who I am. So we have to look back. And we have to say that God is the I am who, fill in the blank. How do we fill in that blank? How has God been faithful to you so you can answer that question? I am who, I heard the first one on my list. Y'all are on a roll. I am who, and they're all up here, sees you, hears you, delivers you, loves you, heals you. I am who keeps my promises. I am who is loving, who is gracious. I am who comes to you, who is with you during your unemployment, during your illness. I am who sees your hardships. I am. God is all these things. And we know this because of what he has done. I am the Lord who carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I carried you and brought you close to myself so that I could be your God, so you could be mine, and I will dwell among you. I will be present with you. God brings his people to himself so that his people can live more deeply into the relationship that God has established through Abraham and completed in Christ. This relationship exists because of what God has done. His grace, his compassion, his promises, his refusal to be anything less than the God that acts decisively for the ones he claims as his own. But God has more to say about his relationship with us and our relationship with others. God continues to speak. God tells us that he loves us, he enters into relationship with us, and also he tells us that he loves us enough to give us boundaries on how to live with him and with each other. Many of us have heard the Ten Commandments before, when we were growing up or when we got in trouble. I don't know, how many can you remember your mom going... Now, the good Lord said. (laughs) But this morning, I want us to take a deep breath. Maybe close your eyes if you want to. Just don't fall asleep. And I want us to listen to these commandments again as if we're hearing them for the first time. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother 
so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God structures a community where we live in love, grace, and justice toward God and others. Instead of these commandments being a new form of slavery for us, God tells us that this is what a holy nation looks like. And the most important commandment is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It comes right after God says who he is, the God that delivers his people and brings them to him, who gathers his people around his grace and his love. We should have no other God before this God, who enters into our lives and acts decisively for us. Martin Luther, the initial leader of the Lutheran movement, personal hero of mine, writes this on the first commandment. That is as much to say. See to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another. In effect, whatever you lack of good, expect it of me and look to me for it. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me. I, yes I, will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only let not your heart cleave or rest in any other. God asks us to look to him because he has shown again and again that he is faithful to, to deliver to us the grace and love that we need for each day. God is asking for faithfulness because he knows it builds trust. Trust sustains our relationships. Trust allows us to obey with a full heart. This is not just true about us and God. It is true in our relationships with one another, whether friend, family, significant other. We have the hope and trust that people will be there for us because we are faithful and trusting to them. It's a two-way street. So how many of us have siblings? Raise your hand. I want to see. Woo! Big majority of us do. I have a sibling as well. Just one, an older brother. Best older brother in the world. I was blessed enough um, to have him and still have him. Um, he took his duties as my older brother, really, really seriously. Like, ridiculously seriously. He was always there for me, even when I least expected it. There was this one time, I was in high school, he's three years older than me. Um, I was in high school, I was on the high school basketball team. And my birthday is in February, so I usually had a game or practice, whatever, on my birthday. And it was my 16th birthday, sweet 16. The one we all get excited for in high school, you know, we get our driver's license and we hope we don't fail it or someone forgets our birthday or something like that. He was in college. Um, I really, really wanted him there, like so bad. And he had, I called him up and I said, Maddie, his name's Matthew, but I call him Maddie. 
I said, can you, can you come home for this? My birthday's on a Friday. It's a weekend. You know, we'll, we'll hang out. It'll be great. I said, uh, sorry, little sis. I have a test or, you know, something or another. I can't make it home. He went to school in Madison, Wisconsin at um, UW-Madison. So I was kind of bummed out, you know. So my birthday comes around. It's Friday night. We're playing our game. I'm sitting on the bench, and there's this space in the gym where my family would always sit. And it's partway into the first half, and I turn and I look up. Guess who's sitting there? Anyone? Anyone? Maddie. He's sitting right there. Came, totally surprised me, um, and it was great. Um, he did it because it was my 16th birthday. Fast forward a couple years to like seven months ago. <laughs> I locked myself out of my house. How many of you have done that before? <laughs> yeah, we have a automatic door in the back for my mom and forgot that I can open the door to get out, can't open it to get back in. I had been um, staying the weekend by myself at my parents' house and stuff and get home from work and... So what does a good person do? Take out the screwdriver, try to bust my way in, can't do it. Neighbor across the street's not home. My parents are way up north. I mean, they're not going to make it back to give me a key. Found out later we don't even have a key. Call up my brother and I say, Maddie, locked out of my house. Can you help me out? He drives 20 minutes from his house, shows up, doesn't have a key. So we call a locksmith. And for two hours after that, on Saturday afternoon, my big brother sat with me in, our, in my parents' driveway at my house. Sat in his car. We even pulled out the basketball, played a little horse. I don't remember who won. We spent two hours together. Hmm? Yeah. We spent two hours together, but he didn't have to. I mean, I could have called the locksmith on my own. I could have, you know, sat outside and been very bored by myself. But he stayed. And he didn't have to. And he stayed because even though I was 24 years old, I was still his little sister. And I needed him. And that was enough. That's all he needed to stay. That's how I see God acting in this commandment. He looks on his people, the people he has delivered out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and he says, let me continue to be with you in this way, that I provide what you need, that I am the one who is there for you, the one who comes to you and for you. Look to me, cleave to me, because I am the God who loves you. I will be with you. I will sit with you, not just for two hours, but forever. You are my treasured possession, and that will never change. But what happens when impatience sets in? How many of us struggle with impatience? I do. I can give you a really good story about what happened to me last night. And that's another sermon. What happens when our timing and God's timing don't match up? How well do we wait for God? What do we turn to and place our trust in while we are waiting? The Israelites become impatient, waiting at the base of the mountain for Moses. 
They are, and he is, he's gone up there, he's gone up into the cloud, there's smoke and there's fire, and he's up there. And they get so impatient having to wait for him that they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, who has been placed in charge of watching over him, watching over the Israelites in Moses' absence. Exodus 32.1 reads, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, this Moses, I can just see them doing this, this Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. It's like the Israelites have some short-term memory issues here. But don't we all, when we want God on our time, his plan to come true on our time, don't we become like the Israelites and demand a golden calf, that instant gratification right here, right now? In the movie The Ten Commandments, infamous Charlton Heston movie, this impatience of the Israelites is just dramatically played out. And it's, I mean, it's Hollywoodized, it's, it's dramatic, but I think it points to that truth of what we can do when we get really, really impatient. Let's go ahead and take a look. So in that clip, we see the aftermath of this rebel. We see the girl tied to the golden calf and them all waiting around. And all of a sudden, Moses comes down, and it's like they clicks over, and they remember, oh, yeah. And we might not have scenes like that to where we so dramatically encounter what happens with our impatience. And we might not literally build a golden calf. But we do demand other things, take your pick of the variety that's out there, in place of God. Again, Martin Luther says, I have often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. Like the Israelites, what idols do we turn to when our impatience gets the best of us? Where does our confidence and faith drift to? What idols do we make for ourselves? Money, possessions, substances, approval, our own glory? And how does this affect God? We see Moses' response on the mountain. Those who will not live by the law will die by the law. But what about God? How does he respond to the Israelites? I don't know where my screen went. Now leave me alone, he says to Moses, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. God experiences a deep pain, anger at being so quickly rejected and forgotten. I mean, we saw all of them around that golden calf. And in the scene just before, they're throwing a huge old rebel, huge old party, forgetting God. He's rejected. He's forgotten. These are his people, the ones he brought to himself. And I wonder if it's not also a deep disappointment. It's that gut-wrenching feeling that just breaks your heart because you love so much, you're invested so much that all you can do is just go, just 
and have the wind knocked out of you. I wonder if this type of disappointment is not what we might feel when we get rejected or if we're parents when our children disobey us and it's just, oh. How many of you are familiar with the Disney movie The Lion King? It's a personal favorite of mine. It has so many great lessons in it. And um, if you've seen the movie, there's a particular scene where Simba, the young prince, and his friend Nala decide to go check out the elephant graveyard, which they have been specifically told, don't go there. Bad idea. Don't do it. Don't go there. And they get into a little bit of trouble. They run into some hyenas. Um, The hyenas try to eat them. And they get trapped up against the wall. And Mufasa, the king, Simba's father, comes and he rescues them. He rescues Simba and he rescues Nala. But we can guess that he's not very happy about this. um, That he's pretty upset with his son. But afterwards, after Nala goes home, Mufasa and Simba have a talk. Let's take a look at that talk. Don't you just love that James Earl Jones voice? But we see in this interaction fear and anger coming from Mufasa, and we see some shame coming from Simba, but there's this undergirding love and grace. Mufasa tells Simba that he was afraid he would lose him. And I think that Moses gets afraid that he and the people might lose God, that God would no longer be present with them. So he intercedes. Moses says, Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? He tells God to remember his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to remember his own name, the I Am, he tells God to remember who he is. Remember, God, you promised. Moses and God, they have this genuine engagement through prayer. And God responds. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So although there is divine anger divine disappointment, these are secondary characteristics of God. Even though God experiences this deep pain, he loves his people more. That is the good news. We have a God who describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in steadfast love. That God becomes angry and experiences a deep disappointment at Israel's rebellion is not surprising. Don't we feel the same way when we are rejected? We experience that type of disappointment and pain in our own relationships. But what is amazing is that God continues to be merciful, continues to be gracious, continues to be loving, and continues to be faithful even in his pain. What is gospel news for us is that God is persistently faithful. The faithful I am who continues to be defined 
as the one who redeems and delivers, the one who enters into relationship with the people he claims as his own, the persistent faithfulness of God, even over against what we sometimes fail to do. We can have faith that the promise of God still comes through. He refuses to give up. And as we continue to look at the story, as one continuous story from beginning Genesis to the end, Revelation, and into our own lives, we see that God remains with us and continues to watch over us and dwell among us. Through the desert to the cross and finally risen from the empty tomb, God refuses to give in to his anger and refuses to stop delivering us. He brings us to himself and close to his heart. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. These are the words he speaks to us, to you and to me. He calls us to a life that is opened to flourish under what God has done for us, a life lived under grace and in love. We are called to live in this covenant with these commandments so that we might live more abundantly, not under a new form of bondage, but a way of life that exemplifies what the gospel is and a life that points to what God has done in redeeming us through Christ, a life that points to a community, you, me, all of us here, a community that lives deeply in grace and love towards one another. We are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a gift and a blessing to each other and the world around us. Amen. Let us stand and let us pray.